Well, good morning, everybody. Good, good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. Y'all are the warriors. 5.30 in the morning, which means you probably woke up about 4, 4.30 to get here, and you've been doing that for weeks, and you've got a few more weeks to come. And so uh, excited, excited you guys are here. Uh, commitment always brings about life change. We never change until we, until we commit to it. And that's true for us for anything. Uh, when it's time to get in shape physically, it's the same as when it's time to get in, in shape uh, spiritually. Uh, one of my favorite verses is, is found in 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses 7 and 8. And uh, Paul, Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. He says that physical training has some value. But, but godliness holds value for both the present time and for eternity. And so it's this idea that, that, that we have to actually make a commitment. So you guys are in this room and you're committed. And that's a step in the right direction. We have to commit before we can do anything else. The man who discipled me when I was in seminary taught me about commitment. And, and that began to change my life. Uh, those of you in this room uh, have, have learned commitment in many ways. Some of you uh, were athletes and you played in college and, and you went pro. Some of you are, uh, went to school and you decided to move on and, and you got your degree. And because of that, now you have the job you have. Some of you started in a trade and you've stayed consistent with it. And you've gotten to a place now in your life where you're hireable. And so for all of us, we have to stay committed. The same is true for us as it relates to our relationship with God. Paul tells Timothy to train himself. It's not as if Timothy didn't have a relationship with Jesus already. It's not as if Timothy hadn't been discipled already. It's not as if Timothy didn't have quite a bit of knowledge already, but yet Paul tells Timothy to continue to press in, to continue to move forward. Have you guys ever gotten to a place where you feel like um, you're good? You're good, where it's like, you know what, I've read the Bible, I've been, I've been to Sunday school, I've been in small groups, I've been in church my whole life, I'm good. I remember making one of the most prideful statements in my life before attending seminary. I was a kid who was raised in uh, the first Baptist church of every town we ever grew up in, and, uh, and with that came a whole lot of Bible knowledge, at least what I, what I considered a lot of Bible knowledge. I remember my grandparents, who were godly people, um, and, and, and helped raise me to know Christ, which is the whole point of studying the Bible. Uh, as, before I went to seminary, they asked what I was most excited about. And I don't exactly remember what I told them I was most excited about, but I remember telling them what I was least excited about. And what I said was, I hope it's more than just showing up and studying the Bible because I'm good. Little did I know that I was far from being good. I was far from truly understanding what God was saying to us through the Scripture. And so I want to just start with that, is that. I think we just all need to start at a place of recognizing that we haven't yet arrived. That we haven't yet arrived. And that begins to change our pursuit. So, so then the next question is, what is our pursuit? Why do we study the Bible? And so I want to make this statement. First of all, I'm going to set it up so that you guys don't throw rocks. Um, I, I read the Bible devotionally. I believe it is, it, is, uh, it is inspired by God. I believe it's for us, as Paul tells Timothy, uh, that it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So the man of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. But let me say this. Don't study the Bible 
Study Jesus. Don't study the Bible. Study Jesus. There's a profound difference between the two. Any of you guys here um, spent any amount of time in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a lectionary class like this before? Maybe it was a seminary class or, um, or maybe just a Bible study class. Anybody? A couple of you guys have done that? You know, one of the, thing, one of the jokes about seminary, and, and, and those of us that have been there before will tell you, that, that it's often call, called cemetery. Cemetery. Maybe you've heard that before. But it's a place that your spirit goes to die. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that oftentimes we make it so highly academic that we forget what it's all about. That it's about helping us know Jesus so that we can be transformed into his likeness so that we can live out his ways. Okay? So, so if our head knowledge doesn't transform our heart, it will never move out into our hands. And there's a word for that. And Jesus got on to these people quite often. They're called the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus said in John 5, he tells them, you search the scriptures because in them you think they have life, but you refuse to come to me. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in a place where all of your Bible study um, has yet to lead to transformation. Maybe you've been in a place where you, all you want to do is know the word, but you've missed the, the word in John chapter 1. And so that's where I want to start today. If you have your Bibles with you or, or your devices, I want us to turn to John chapter 1 first. And what, what I'm going to do today is we, is we open up with a few passages. We're going to then move into a, a time of, of, of lots of interaction. And we're going to be walking through the inductive Bible study method, and you're going to be able to work together at your tables, and we're going to go back and forth together. Uh, and, and we're going to take a break at about 640, 645, so you guys can go to the bathroom and get ready to come back, and, 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 and we'll finish up after that. So just a little bit of info where we're headed. John chapter 1. We should not read the Bible... If our goal is not to know Jesus and to be transformed into his likeness, okay? So, so the reality of what's going on with the scripture is this. How many of you guys have heard people call the Bible the word, the word of God, right? Okay, and fair enough. In, in a way, it is. In a way, the scriptures are God's word to us. But John chapter 1 tells us something profound. Let's read it together. John chapter 1 verse 1. The Apostle John says, in the beginning was the, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was who? God. This is telling us something. Let's keep looking. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so he has yet to tell us who this word is, yet we know that this word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Nothing was made apart from him. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. The next few verses talk about John the Baptist and his role in helping people understand who the Word is. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh, this is what we call the incarnation, and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 16, And from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, check this out, but grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. So who's this word spoken about in verses 1 through 4? Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, who was just revealed to us as Jesus, he has made him what? Known. Here's something we need to understand before we dive into Scripture, that we need to be Christ-centered, that all of the Bible speaks of Jesus, that the point of the Bible is Jesus. Everything is about Jesus, the law, the prophets, it's all about Christ. And when we begin to, to get into the Bible and study the Bible, yet we miss Jesus, We've missed everything. And it will not lead to real transformation in our lives. Now, Psalms 1 is a beautiful picture of the wisdom of the Word. Okay? In Psalm chapter 1, if you guys want to read that with me, before I continue to, to hit the, 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 the nail with the hammer of Jesus being the Word, I want us to read Psalm 1. It says this, Blessed is the man... Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What do we see in John 1? Where'd the law come from? Who? Moses. Okay? Let's keep, let's keep looking. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. This is sounding good, isn't it? The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but all of the ways of the wicked will perish." We see here in Psalm chapter 1 that if we would actually know the Scriptures and live them out, we're going to be blessed. Okay? Here's the point I want to make. The Scriptures are inspired by God, and they're useful, as Paul tells Timothy, for correcting, training, rebuking, all of these things so that we would be equipped. That's the purpose. Reading the Bible apart from Jesus, can lead to blessing because there is wisdom there, okay? Sadly, however, many of us have settled for a Christless Scripture. And because of that, we're walking around maybe experiencing blessing because we understand that if we'll just do these things, if we'll live out the Proverbs and the wisdom found there, or, or we'll look at Solomon's life and we'll, we'll stay away from some of the things that led him down and we'll do the things that he asked us to do, that, that we'll have a blessed life. And, and for the most part, that's true because they're God's ways. And, and whether or not you're in Christ or not in Christ, if you live your life according to wisdom, you will be blessed. But life, that's a different story. 
eternal life. That's a whole nother thing. That comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. If we read the scripture for the purpose of knowing the Bible and we miss Jesus, at best, you might live a life that someone who is not in Christ could already live. But if you read the scriptures with Jesus in mind as your goal, as your pursuit, as your desire, and you grow in him through his grace, your life can truly be transformed by the, spirit of, by the power of Christ in you. We have to be careful that we don't study the Scripture for the sake of studying the Scripture. That we study Scripture for the sake of knowing Jesus and making Him known. When I went to seminary, I didn't quite understand that, sadly. I don't know how I missed it. And I remember I'd been married. For, my wife and I got married. I was 20. She was 21. And so we were I don't know, four years into marriage by the time I was in, um, in seminary. And getting married early uh, saved my life. Jesus saved my soul. Getting married early saved my life. Uh, I don't know if any of you can resonate with that, but that, that, that's how my story goes. And, um, and, and, and I found myself waking up every morning at 5.30. And I would read the Bible, and I would pray, and I would take notes, and I would be diligent about it. But my goal was never Christ. My goal was knowledge. And years went by where I read the Bible multiple times, but I never seemed to change. Every now and then, the Spirit of God would move in my life, and, and I would read a text, and I would, I would know that, that this is the way I need to live. But, but Jesus wasn't central to what I was doing. I would go to seminary classes, and it was a good seminary, strong seminary, and it wasn't their intent, but regularly we would miss the gospel. Guys, we have churches and preachers. This is not one of those churches, and we don't have one of those preachers by the grace of God. But there are churches and preachers who stand up, exposit the text, and miss Christ and just miss Jesus. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you can have life, but, but they point to me. They point to me. In John chapter 1, what we read first, John says that Jesus makes God fully known. Did you see that? That, that Jesus made God known to us fully. That when we look at Jesus, we see the full revelation of God. So, so here's where I want to take us today. Before we jump into how to study the Bible, I want this to be our thought. That when we look at Jesus, we see God. That what is true about Jesus is true about God. That begins to change the way we understand the Scripture. All of Scripture is pointed to the full revelation of God seen in Jesus, the God-man. And so now that we have Christ, that we have the Gospels, that we've seen his life, we interpret all the rest of Scripture through the lens of Jesus. Did you hear that? 
We interpret all the rest of Scripture through the lens of Jesus. It's not as if the Old Testament is not as good as the New Testament. Don't hear me say that. But as Paul said, we were seeing through a glass dimly. And it wasn't until Jesus showed up that we could see God fully and completely. Okay? So we're gonna, you're going to see how that plays it, itself out in just a minute. If, if you would... Turn with me to to Philippians chapter 2. This is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. Philippians chapter 2. I started this out by, by, by talking about Paul's letter to Timothy, and Paul told Timothy to train himself for righteousness. He says, train yourself for righteousness. Paul understood the importance of Scripture. Paul... Uh, lists his accolades uh, in the very next chapter. <laughs> if, if you want to know what, what we should give up as it relates to, uh, in order to gain Christ, look at Philippians chapter 3, right? Because Paul says, hey guys, uh, if, if anybody didn't have to give up everything, it would be me, is basically what he was saying. But I consider all that I have rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and attain to the resurrection. So he lists his accolades. So who is Paul? Paul says in Philippians 3, he's, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I, I was zealous. I was a Pharisee. I persecuted the church. All the things that the people of Israel who didn't know Jesus would have been standing up, waving the flag, and cheering for. Well done, good Hebrew boy. But then Jesus shows up and blinds him and wrecks his life and everything changes that doesn't happen for us, then the Scripture is not going to bring us life. It's going to do what the law tends to do, which is, which is bring us judgment. And so Paul has a high view of Scripture. He has a high view of what we would call the, 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 the lowercase word of God. High view of the things that have been written in the past for our instruction. In Hebrews chapter 5, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. If, if you don't, that's okay. We're not here to figure out who the author of Hebrews is. But I think Paul wrote it, and he says this. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Let me say that again. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves, there it is again, to distinguish good from evil. And so today we're talking about a way that we can make sure that we are training ourselves for godliness, training ourselves to make sure that we are beginning to get on a steady diet of meat instead of baby food. How many of you guys have kids in here? Most of us have kids. If, if you don't have kids at some point, you were a kid, right? That's how you got here. The reality is, at some point, your diet began to change. You were, you were, you were either being fed by mama or, or, or you were given a bottle, right? And that's how you survived for a while. But at some point, your kids got to a point where, where my kids now are, and they're hungry, and they're not going to wait around for daddy to roll up and cook some bacon. And so I hear their little feet running down the hallway in the morning, and I hear them climbing up in the pantry, and I hear the cereal spilling. I'm telling you, this happens like three days a week. It's just like there goes, the, there goes the cocoa puffs on the floor again because they're ready to be self-feeders. 
And, and so as a father, as a disciple maker, it goes back to what Scott said, we're learning today so that we can grow, but also so that we can help others grow. As a father, as a good disciple maker to my children, instead of just letting them spill the cocoa puffs, I need to roll up one morning, get my, my lazy, sorry butt out of bed, and walk over there and say, hey, son, let me show you how to do this in such a way that you can get your cereal in the bowl so you don't have to eat it off the floor right? Let me show you how to feed yourself so you don't starve because one day daddy's not going to be around to feed you. One day mama's not going to be around. Let's not pretend like I cook anything more than Cocoa Puffs. One day mama's not going to be around to make some food for you so that you can eat it. And so even now I need to begin to train you to feed yourself. When I first started out in ministry, uh, I had an interesting job. I, I was, I was, Hired at a First Baptist Church in Carrollton, Texas. It's a great church. It's kind of a legacy Southern Baptist church. And I was serving as college pastor, and check this out, middle school pastor. <laughs> and so I would meet with a college student on the same day I'd meet with a, with a seventh grader, and that would make your head spin. And the differences between a seventh grader and a college student are vast. Now, sometimes the maturity levels are the same, but the differences tend to be vast. However, here's what I found. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with age. You can be 65 years old and, 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 be, on a, uh, and be on the bottle. You can be 65 years old and be on the bottle, or you can be 25 years old and be eating a steady diet, a healthy diet. Age really doesn't have a whole lot to do with spiritual maturity. And so we need to get out of this idea that if somebody's walking around here with gray hair, that means that they may know more about the Scripture, or, they may be, or, or even more so, they, they may be more transformed into Christ's likeness. We hope so. That would be good, but that's making a large assumption that at some point they've decided to train themselves. So here's where we're going. Philippians chapter 2, I want to walk us through the inductive... Bible study method with an understanding that all of this, I chose Philippians 2 for a reason, all of this is about Christ. Everything we study, everything we do is about knowing Jesus, being transformed by Jesus and making him known. Head, heart, hands. So what I'm going to do first, if you guys have your notes with you before we jump into Philippians 2, I want to give you the outline of an inductive Bible study method and then we're going to work through each one of these together. No, I'm just going to, you guys write it down if you got something. Yeah, there are, there are seven things, seven things. I'm, I'm going to give them to you. When you're studying the Bible, let me say this again. I feel like I always got to give qualifications because this is where I've messed things up. So hopefully you won't do as I've done. When you're studying the Bible, please don't study the Bible for the sake of studying the Bible. I got to say that again. Okay, don't get lost in this process. Don't do it. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss the transformation. Just because we throw these things out. And if you're discipling people, don't, don't disciple a Pharisee. Don't, don't disciple someone into Phariseeism. For those of us that find ourselves in a place of Phariseeism, which in my, in my description would be that we're, we're educated beyond our obedience, don't, don't find yourself in that place on accident. You don't intend to be. None of us in this room want to wake up one day and be like, man, I look like a Pharisee. But if we miss 
the fact that we're studying the scripture to know Jesus and be transformed by him, then, then that's where we're going to end up. So here we go. Seven steps that we're going to work through together that I hope will become a part of how you study the Bible. The first is this, part of the inductive Bible study method. We start with a historical background. Historical background. Here's, here's a couple of things that, that matter. Okay, a couple, a couple of side notes under historical background, a couple of points. Who is it written to? Who was it written to? It wasn't written to you. They didn't know you existed. Who was it written to primarily? What was, their, what was their first purpose of why this was written? What type of literature is this? We're going to go into this a little bit today. What type of literature is this? The Bible is not one book. Did you know that? It's a bunch of books. It's kind of like a library. In fact, that's kind of what the term Bible means. It's 66 books. There's 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New Testament. We believe that one God wrote them all. We believe that it was written by men. Okay? We believe that God wrote them all through men. So here's a couple of types of literature. There's law. There's law. There's history. There's wisdom. So law, history, wisdom. There's poetry or psalms. Those, I put those in the same camp. Some people don't. It's okay. Poetry or psalms. There's gospel. There's epistles. There's prophecy. And then there's our favorite, apocalyptic. We all love that, don't we? Yeah. So let me say this again really quickly. Law, history, wisdom, poetry or psalms, gospel, epistles, prophecy, and apocalyptic. So historical background. Who wrote it? Who wrote it and to whom was it written? What type of literature is this? Along with who wrote it and to whom was it written, when was it written? And here's a good one. Why was it written? It's part of the historical background. That's number one. It's a question we need to answer before we really begin to interpret. Number two, personal paraphrase. How many of you guys like, it's okay to say this, you can admit it, you're not going to get stoned. How many of you guys like the message? I, I, I actually, I, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I hated it. I would burn it every time I found it. That was one of those deals. It was like, yeah, how many message Bibles did you burn this week? I got five. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, however, I've learned, to, I've, gr- I've grown to love it. When I view it for what it is, I've, I've grown to love it. That, that a man of God, who's one of the leading scholars in Greek and Hebrew, has done a really good job of step two, of putting it in his own words. And it makes sense to me. But as we go about the study of Jesus through the scriptures, we've got to get to a place where we have a personal paraphrase. We're going to work that out today in Philippians 2. So number one, historical background. Number two, personal paraphrase. Number three, question and answer. Here's what that looks like. You come to a place and you say, "Um, I don't know what that means. Has that ever happened to you? Nah, never happened to you guys, right? It's like, nah, I don't know what they're talking about. i got to write that down. So number three, we write down our questions. Maybe we can have an answer. Maybe it comes to us. Typically, the best thing to do when you have a question is write it down and keep reading. (laughs) Because oftentimes, 
the Bible in context reveals what it's talking about. But sometimes we can't figure that out. So part of question and answer is at some point you go get your answer. And I recommend having a good word study or a good commentary. Those are things that we can point you guys to. Uh, Number four is cross-references. Make note of passages that come to mind. What passages are like it? You're going to see some of that today. Number five is insights. I, I call this aha moments. You ever have one of those where you're reading the scripture and you're like, ah, oh, yes, th- this, and this reminds me of this. And so you, you have these aha moments and, and you write it down. I call that insights. So, so far we've gotten number one, history, number two, personal paraphrase, number three, question and answer, number four, cross-reference, number five, insights. Number six, because we don't want to just leave it at head knowledge, number six is personal application. We've got to move this from our head into our hearts and into our hands. And the last one, number seven, I call that title and summarizing. Now, there's a reason for all of these. We do all of this so that the Word of God will will, will flow deeply into our heart and out into our hands. All of these are important for us. We study the history so that we don't wind up making mistakes in, in, um, in translation, thinking that, that God uh, is saying something to us today like, like he did then. Okay? Let me give you some examples. Okay, Y'all ready? Hope you had your coffee this morning, because uh, there are some things that we need to work out together as the church. We've really messed up translation as it relates to history. How many of you guys grew up in the Southern Baptist Church like me? Anybody? Some of us? Okay. How many of you guys grew up in more of a charismatic style church? Anybody? Okay. How many of you guys grew up kind of in the middle, kind of non-denominational? Okay. All right. All right. So let me, let me, I'm not trying to make light of this, but it is kind of funny. So when I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures in Southern Baptist life. Okay, it really was, and we read the Bible. Now, bear with me here. It's all gonna don't don't throw stones yet. We read the Bible um, in a way that that elevated it uh, beyond the place that it deserved. We elevated it to, to to the Trinity. We elevated it to a place where it was God. Okay, now for for my for my for my brothers in here that grew up charismatic, you grew up with uh, God the Father. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and Scripture didn't exist very often, some of you guys. Some of you guys, if there was an error in Southern Baptist life, it's that we elevated the Scripture too high. If there's an error in the charismatic life, it's that we didn't really give a rip what the Scripture said. It's all about how we feel right now, right? So we've all experienced a bit of that, 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 that we can let the pendulum swing all the way in one direction f- way too far. Okay, So we start with history as it relates to the inductive Bible study method for a lot of reasons. One of them is we've got to put Scripture in its place. We've got to understand that, yes, we believe this is inspired of God and it's useful for us and it points us to Jesus. We've got to understand the context, the history of what is going on. Okay, So here's what I want to do. We're going to be in Philippians 2 today, and I'm going to read for us a few verses, and we're going to walk through these seven steps together, and we're going to start with history. We're going to see why it's so important. Philippians chapter 2, 
verse 1. Paul says this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, Paul says, nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In verse 8, being found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself by becoming, what's that next word? Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, therefore, in light of what was just said about who Jesus is and what he did for us, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Step one, historical background. Who wrote, who wrote Philippians? Paul did. Write that down. We're going to walk through this together. Inductive Bible study method. Step one, historical background. Who wrote it? Paul did. Paul did. How do we know Paul wrote it? Look at, look at chapter 1, verse 1. What's the first word you see there? Paul. Right? So we didn't make it up. Who wrote this? Oh, Moses wrote it. How do you know? Well, I don't know. I just made it up. No. Who wrote it? Paul wrote it. That tells us something. Listen. We don't need to be afraid to admit that the Bible is inspired by God, but written by men. Some of us are so afraid to admit that, that we can't pick up the nuances of what's written by authors. Have you noticed when you read the Bible that, that different personalities come out? Have you noticed Paul's personality come out in comparison to Luke's, the doctor, the physician, who just wants to give it to you straight? who's just like, hey man, I, hey, O Theophilus, I have studied everything, and after taking into account all that's taken place, here it is, boom. That's his personality. Here's Paul's personality. So God doesn't kill off our personalities when he asks us to do things. In fact, he uses our personalities to make things take place. Our personalities, however, don't get to be bigger than God. They don't get to get in the way. Um, that's called sin. So, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 says that it was written by Paul, okay? Now, check this out. To whom was it written? All right, how do we know that? The, the next part says what? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at where? At, at Philippi. Okay, that's really important for us. It's not just a letter now, 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 I want to be careful here. 
typically the way Scripture worked after it was written, interestingly enough, uh, history would tell us that, that the church viewed what these apostles had written, the men who saw Jesus, who had walked with Jesus, they viewed that as Scripture, and later it was canonized or it made it into the Bible because they viewed it as such. But the way these, these epistles worked, the way that the, these, these things that the, that the apostles wrote worked is they would write it, they sent it to a church at Philippi, and it ended up going to Ephesus. And, and it'd end up going all throughout Macedonia, and it'd go to the church in Corinth, right? And, and so they would pass these letters around, okay? But, but he wrote things to this specific church. We see that very clearly in Corinth. If, he took, if the church at Corinth took 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is talking about expelling the immoral brother who was in a relationship with his father's wife, and sent it to the church at Philippi, they would know better than to look around their church for the guy who Paul's talking about. Because that probably wasn't happening, we hope, <laughs> in their church. This was written to the church at Corinth, and, and he was saying, hey, listen, there's a dude who's sleeping with his father's wife, and that does not work in the church. That's not how this works. We're called to righteousness and obedience in Christ, and this guy is making a mockery of the faith, and he's dragging the name of Jesus through the mud, and he's living in sin, and you need to do something about it. Now, this seems silly, but what would have happened if the church of Philippi received that letter, and we think they probably did. They saw it. What would have happened if they had said, hey, now which one of you fools is sleeping with your, with your dad's wife? Somebody there who had half a brain would have been like, hey man, uh, I hope it's none of us, but I'm pretty sure that was written to the church at Corinth, right? So it really matters that we understand what's going on because it changes the way that we understand how to live it, uh, what to do with it, right? So who's it written? Two. It was written by Paul to the church at Philippi. Let's keep looking at why that matters. First of all, next question here in historical is what type of literature is this? Based on the ones that I gave you, is it law, history, wisdom, poetry, gospel, epistles, prophecy, apocalyptic? Where would you put this? It's epistles. And then in chapter 2, we get a little gospel. <laughs> really. I mean, it's not necessarily the, the, the literary gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's not the synoptics. But, but you get gospel right here. Okay? In, in the truest form of the word. It's the truth of who God is and what he's done. But it's, it's the epistles. Okay? This is, that means it was written by an apostle to the church. Next question. When was it written? When was it written? Now this is when we need to do a little study. Because typically Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm sitting here in a jail cell in AD 68. And I just want you guys to know that this is what's going on. Sometimes that happens doesn't always come out with a date, but you get a general idea of what's going on in his life. Here's what we know about the, this letter that was written. Paul wrote it while he was sitting in jail in Rome. Okay? So that's going to help us interpret some things. It's going to help us better understand because later Paul talks about having joy in all of our circumstances. And so if we're reading Philippians 3, and I wrote you a book about having joy in all the circumstances, and my circumstances are pretty easy. I, I'm on the gravy train. Uh, I live in, in North America, and, and let's just be honest, I'm a white guy, and, uh, and I've got some money, and I've got a great family, and I drive a nice pickup truck. Uh, joy in all circumstances coming from me doesn't mean just a whole lot. But when you're Paul, who's been beaten, abused, and stoned, multiple times, 
and you're now sitting in prison, your words carry a little more weight. So that when I read joy in all circumstances, I'm not reading it from some dude like me who has never really experienced persecution. I'm reading it from a guy who has walked through it. And in walking through it, he's remained faithful to Jesus. This is a guy who's earned my audience. This is a guy who's earned my attention. This is a guy who I can learn from. We understand what is going on. Where is he? How did he find himself there? Why was it written? Why was it written? It's part of the historical question. Why was it written? <clears throat> now, until, until we read the text multiple times, sometimes we can't answer that question. And I think sometimes we got a bad habit. And I'll just be honest with you. I do. Sometimes I have a bad habit of jumping ahead and finding all the answers before I do the work myself. You guys ever been there? It's like, hey, you know what? Gruden wrote a really good systematic theology that I think is really going to straighten this out before i got to go in and do the hard work. What that does is it robs us of 1 Timothy 4.7, training ourselves for godliness. It robs us of learning how to truly study. We jump ahead and we do the easy way. We let somebody else run that mile for us. You know, that never works. You know, I went and worked out with Frank yesterday. Frank's sitting over here. If I let Frank do my, my, uh, my workout for me, does it, does it help me at all? No, not really. I was at the gym, but I didn't get any work. S same is true if we let somebody else do all the work for us. We need to read it and figure out why was it written. Carl Lester, I think you had a question back there, brother. What you got? Good. Yes. Yes. That's right. So you were able to do that because why? Yeah, how did you know that? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. That's right. So, so what I heard you say right there is that you've given your life to studying the book of Philippians. So because of that, you can answer this why question. You see what just happened there? He knows the why was written because he's read it. He's read it. He's tried to apply it. It's really simple, guys. I, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if we're going to answer some of these questions, we've got to get in the book. A couple other reasons he wrote it. You're exactly right. A couple other reasons he wrote it. <clears throat> Practically, and this is good for us to know. He, he, he wanted to tell them thank you for a gift they had sent. Actually, Philippians tells us that pretty clearly. He says in, in verses uh, 12 through, um, through 18, he says a couple of things. Hey, I wrote this for several reasons. Uh, one of those is that I want to say thank you for a gift that you sent me through a man named Epaphroditus who happened to get sick to the point of nearly dying. And, and I want you to know, I'm writing this letter to say thank you I'm also writing this letter to let you know how your brother Epaphroditus is doing. Because that guy almost died in service to Jesus and me. And I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged that this guy's no longer dead. Jesus has saved him, and Paul says, interestingly enough, has saved me through it. I didn't want to have to send back a letter to you guys letting you know that the guy you sent to help me and serve me in the name of Jesus with the money that you sent me is dead. And now I'm writing back to you, Lord, so that your church will rejoice in what the Lord has done and what God has done, right? So he's going to encourage the believers. He's also, he's, also, he's also recognizing that people are under persecution. And so he leads strong in saying, listen, I've been there. I've done that. Let's hold fast to Jesus. So number one is historical background. We answer those questions. Who wrote it? What type of literature is it? When? From where? Who is it written to and Why? That helps us begin to interpret the passage a little bit better, a little bit better. Now, I'm going to jump on this for just, just a minute, and then we're going to take a break. Name this verse, or, or, or say this verse for me, Jeremiah 29, 11. What is it? I know the plans I have for you. How else does it go? Good. That's right. We love that verse, don't we? That's exactly right. We love that verse. Now, now, overall, I don't think it's necessarily wrong for a Christian who's in the family of God, who's living under the blessing of the Father as children of God and brothers and sisters to one another, to, to, to believe that. That God has plans for us and they're to prosper us, right? Now, we need to identify what it means to prosper because sometimes prosper means that we're going to suffer in Jesus' name rightly. But what we like to do is we like to take that verse and we want to apply it to us. What book is that found in? Jeremiah. Who was Jeremiah? A prophet. At what time did Jeremiah live? Exile. What was going on? Israel was what? They were taken out of their home. They were in captivity. Now, what happens around that verse? What's going on? If you need to look, you can turn to Jeremiah 29. You got it in your, you got it in your Bible. Yeah. 
Mm. That's right. What do we like to do? What do a lot of people like to do with this verse? What's that, Dan? What is it? We like it. We like that verse. We're going to claim it to ourselves. How many of you, though, wanted to be in exile in that time? Man, I sure don't. I don't know about you, but I'm not looking to, to go be a martyr anytime soon. If God calls me to do it, praise God, and we're going to go give our lives. But I'm not looking for it. I'm not looking for it. So I guess if you want to claim that verse and you want to head off over somewhere where it puts you in that kind of situation, then feel free. I don't think the Bible would call that wisdom. You see, it's important for us to understand the context. I go on and on and on. We've got a lot of uh, a bumper sticker verses we like to use, don't we, that are ripped out of, out of uh, the original intent. Here's what we're going to do. Why don't you guys take about a, about a six, seven-minute break. We'll, we'll get started again. Let's do, uh, let's do 657. How about that for random? 657. Go to the bathroom, get you something to drink, and then we're going to move into number two. We're going to do some personal paraphrasing. I'll start us out, and we'll do it around the table. Okay. All right, guys. Let's um, let's come back together, and um, and we're gonna jump. We're gonna we're gonna take some steps together here over the next uh, looks like thirty minutes. All right. Well, let's do this. We're about to jump into. Um, into this number two, which is personal paraphrase. So before we do that, I want to pray. I want to pray for us, but I also want to, I want to do this intentionally. I want to pattern this for us, that we're not jumping into um, the work of studying Scripture without first uh, relying on the Spirit of God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather as men and to look at your Scripture. Thank you for Jesus, who is the Word, Thank you for your scripture, which points us to Jesus. And as we look at Philippians chapter 2, we're reminded of, of, of who Paul was, the life that he lived. And we don't, uh, we don't honor him in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that we shouldn't, but we look to him as an example who, um, who loved you, Jesus, to the point where he's willing to give up all things. And Jesus, he learned that from you. That, you, that Jesus, you loved the Father and you loved us. And out of your love for the Father and your obedience to the Father, you have rescued us. And as we look at Philippians 2, we see that you humbled yourself. And so I pray that as we read, we would be transformed by the truth of who you are and what you've done, by the power of your Spirit in us. May we not walk away unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. Personal paraphrase. What I want us to do here is take the first, um, the first seven verses and give it a personal paraphrase. 
So let me give you an example. I usually like to do this verse by verse. I'm going to let you guys do it on your own, and then we're going to talk about it at your table. So verses 1 through 7, let me read a few of these at a time. So Paul says this, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here's what we've got to be careful about. Just real quick, this is simple. Remember this. Don't try and paraphrase a verse just because it's got a number next to it. Um, read out the thought. Read out the thought. When, when, when this was written, there weren't chapters and verses. Okay, and sometimes that can really throw us off. Read out the thought so that you can really get a good, um, a good translation. You can really understand what's being said. So verses 1 and 2 work together. Um, and I just read it to you. And, and let me give you an example of kind of what I've written down. And then you guys can, can work on, on, uh, on those two verses on your own here for just a minute. This is what I say. If knowing Jesus has benefited you in any way, then do me a favor. If loving Jesus has benefited you in any way, do me a favor. Love one another and agree with one another. Okay? That's where we're at. One and two. That was my translation. So what would that look like for you guys? Spend a little bit of time on your own right there, a couple of minutes, and translate verses one and two in your own words. Okay? And then we'll, we'll share it with one another in just a minute. But translate verses 1 and 2 in your, in your own words. This is helping us better understand what's being said. It's moving that head into the heart. Whenever you feel like your guys are ready, have one or two share what they wrote. For the sake of time... For the sake of time, I'm going to ask a question, and uh, if your table, if your table leader would uh, would uh, would uh, answer this question for your table, I, I would appreciate it. Um, so, so, so sp- I'm going to ask a question, and then your table leader is going to ask it to the table, and that's how that's going to work. So, um, here's the question: What took place? What did you see happen? as you paraphrased, what took place? If you guys want to answer that, give that answer to your, to your, uh, to your table leader. What, what happened when you paraphrased? What happened when you put it in your own words? sake of time, if you're table leader, I'm just going to have every table leader share a little bit about what was shared. You guys, table leader over here, what did what, what'd you hear? What, what took place? Um, basically, it, when you put it in, uh, say you put in your own words, it basically rewires how you interpret information, like, like taking something you interpreted and changing it into your own words, like to make it stick to you. All right, all right, all right, good. What about you guys over here, Dan? I'm assuming Dan's the table leader. Uh, maybe I shouldn't make that assumption. Are you are you the table leader back here, Dan? Okay. <laughs> What'd you hear, man? What what, what did people answer? How they answer that question? Devin made the comment about making it personal for him 
Okay. Right. Even though it applies to ourselves, but in, in the book of the text of it, it's written to people in captivity right. in Babylon. Yes. And it doesn't say when when that is there a principle to when it's good. Good, good. Yes. Paraphrase. What what Dan said is that is that um, so first here we shared that it was it was really moving from our head to our hearts is I think what I heard, is that there was a transition in our own language where it began to move from this is what it says to this is what it means, okay? Um, over here, it was, uh, we, we were told that this is an opportunity for us to begin to understand what's the principle that we're supposed to take away from this. Uh, how about you guys? Good. So now that we've said that a couple of times, before I move on to you guys, how important is it that we start with the background first? How important is it that we understand the context before we really begin to... It's pretty important, isn't it? Because now we're trying to personalize. We're about back here. Good. Good. Thanks for that. Excellent. It helps us remember. Maybe we even find a verse to memorize out of this. Yeah. What about over here? Uh, one of that uh, well helps us move from the mouth to the speech. Good. 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 I was kind of over here in your conversation. I think somebody over here sa- there, uh, said basically the way I I talk about Paul's. Paul's the king of run-on sentences. Paul Paul's the king of compound sentences. Yada, 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 comma, a whole lot more, comma, a whole lot more. And, and, uh, and I'm not the most intelligent guy in the room, and so oftentimes it's like, my goodness, we just need to calm down a little bit. We need to, what are you talking about? Okay, so what I want to do for the sake of time is, is do verses 3 uh, and 4, and then I'm going to give you my paraphrase, and then we're going to move on to, uh, to, to, number, to, to the... Um, the next way we do the inductive Bible study method, which is question and answer. So three and four. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is, this is my paraphrase. Don't make it all about you. That's it. They'll make it all about you. Do you notice how it was helpful to get around a couple of guys because everybody said it a little bit differently? I heard a few guys give like three words, right? I heard some guys give kind of, kind of as many sentences as Paul gave, but in their own words, and then I heard everything in between, right? And so it's the beauty of, of, of coming together and walking through this. I wonder if this is something we can do in our Bible studies together, in our small groups together. It would help us better understand what's, what's taking place. So number one, first thing we do is historical background. We ask the questions. Number two, personal paraphrase. We kind of get it in our own words. Number three, question and answer. Question and answer. Now, Historically, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 is, um, and we're going to get to this in number 4, cross-references. Historically, Philippians chapter 2 has had a whole lot of debate around it, a whole lot of debate. 
um, trying to understand what does it mean, what is this gnosis? What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What, what, is it, what does it mean? So there's been a lot of heresies created. That's why we ended up creating creeds that says this is who Jesus is and statements of faith for believers because uh, you tend to go off our rocker and try to come up with, try to solve the mystery of the gospel. You know, We try to solve a lot of these issues and, and, and oftentimes we're, we're way off and, and, and it's wrong. And so this is one of the four Christological passages in the New Testament. And if you're, if you're a guy who likes to take notes, you really want to study um, who Jesus is and what he's done. This is one of four, Philippians 2. The other three is John chapter 1. We read a bit of that earlier. Um, another one is Colossians chapter 1. And then another one is, uh, is Hebrews chapter 1. And so those really speak a lot to who Jesus is, and we call those the Christological passages. So your question and answer here, it could be, you could be full of questions. The church has had questions throughout the centuries. He says this in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, before we even move into what happened because of Jesus' obedience, there are probably some questions that are coming to mind. So why don't you guys around your table, under the, the, the good maturity and leadership of your, uh, of, your, uh, of your table group leaders, why don't you come up with one or two questions? What questions come to mind between verses 5 and verse 7? What question comes to mind between verse 5 and verse 7? So for the, for the sake of time, I know we're moving quick. Uh, in the back, back here, what kind of question did you guys come up with? Okay, good. Uh-huh. Okay, what does it mean? They said, what does it mean to be in the form of God? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? What did you guys come up with? Questions? Good question. Why, why would this be the way? Good. What about you guys? Did God give up part of his deity in this? Okay, good. So we're lighting a big massive bomb and throwing it in the room here. So yeah, that's right. That's going back to that's going to lead us back to church church history. Church, thanks, Ken. Appreciate that. No, that's good. What, what does it mean that he emptied himself? What about you guys? Question. How did God? Yeah, that's right. What about you guys? Same deal. So that tends to come up. A lot of questions come up, but the one that tends to come up in this passage more than any other is what is this all about? That Jesus emptied himself. What does that mean? And so here's what we do it's really, really important that when we interpret Scripture, we interpret Scripture with the rest of Scripture. Okay? And we use good history, that we don't make the mistakes of Martian and those guys in the past that really led some of the church 
astray. That instead we go back and we look at church history, and at this point when we have questions, this is a great opportunity for us to say, if I have a question, that means I probably don't have the answer. And so instead of pridefully trying to answer the question on my own, this is a really good opportunity for me to take a step back from my translation and my interpretation and to go figure out where the answer is. Who has a good answer? Maybe you ask people. Maybe you read a commentary or two or three. Maybe you listen to a good preacher. Whatever it is, we've got to come up with an answer. And the answer is not right until we've come up with an answer that, interestingly enough, does a couple of things. One, pass the test of history. Okay. Two, pass the test of Scripture interpreting Scripture. All right? So, in this room, not all of us are going to agree with theology from A to Z. At some point, we're going to have some differences. There are close-handed issues and there are open-handed issues, okay? What we're dealing with here is did Jesus empty himself and stop being God is what I would consider a close-handed issue. Is that if he stopped being God, that's a pretty significant problem, okay? And so, if Jesus at some point was not fully God and fully man, we're running into some real problems with our atonement, all right? Because the Bible tells us that no man can ransom another. Okay? So God had to, Jesus had to be fully God and fully man for this to work for us. History of the church would tell us the same thing. And so we need to interpret this verse through the lens of Scripture interpreting Scripture and through the lens of the church and how it has interpreted Scripture throughout history. Okay? And we need to make sure that we're not running crazy out the other end, because the Spirit of God that is in you is the Spirit of God that's been in the church from the beginning, okay? So we need to make sure that those things are working themselves out. That's really important. When we ask our questions, that we're finding our answers in the right place. You're not finding it from your buddy who, uh, who, who may or may not have a clue, okay? Or from the guy who's preaching on TV who may or may not have a clue, or whoever the, the new Rob Bell is of the day, Okay? So, yeah, I just threw that out there, I know. Uh, uh, he's, he's had some good things, and I think in some ways it's been helpful, but in other ways has not been. So he would make it on my list of be careful. Uh, <clears throat> so here's, here's what's going on. We answer our question with the test of history and with the test of Scripture. It leads us to the next part, number four, cross-references. What does this remind us of? And I gave you guys the three other passages, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. This should remind us of other passages that are a lot like this, that sound a lot like this, that speak to the same things. What does that help us do? What do you think that's important as it relates to helping us interpret? Scripture interprets Scripture. And one place may not have the answers to all of our questions. But if we go... Over to Colossians 1, we see that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that all things are made by him and for him and through him. Well, that sounds a whole lot like what? John chapter 1, who, who he is the word from the beginning. This is who Jesus is, so is there any question that he's still fully divine? I don't think so, right? I think too, if we give us an interpretation that we can't find anywhere else, it should make us question Exactly. We need to, that, that helps us a ton. Okay? So cross-referencing really saves our bacon. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a small group leader or a preacher, 
and you don't have any cross-references for the thing that you're teaching, there's probably an issue because the, the, the Bible interprets itself, okay? Everything points to the truth we find in Christ. Number five, insights. I mentioned that insights um, are those aha moments. After you've completed your, your personal paraphrase, your Q&A, you've cross-referenced, your insights finally matter. <laughs> your, your, insights, your insights finally matter. What is it? Oh, now I get it. Here's a story for you. This is shameful, but I'm going to admit it. Hopefully you guys will learn from my mistake. 19 years old, felt a call to ministry and decided that I was ready far, far, far before I was ready. And uh, while I was still in college, about 20 years old, just gotten married, before I took a job at a, at a, at a church where they, with, actually with William Rainey, I've known William for over a decade, who's our lead staff pastor, before he took me alongside and taught me the ways more fully, kind of an Paul and Apollos type of situation, or Apollos and, and Priscilla and Aquila, if you remember that story in Acts, Apollos is running around thinking he knows what it's all about, and he really doesn't. So I have an interview with a church that wasn't the church William was at. The guy sits me down at a restaurant, and he begins to ask me questions about Jesus, and I'm just crushing it. I mean, I'm killing it, and I'm thinking I'm the man. And he gets to this, and he says, now tell me, who created the earth? Who created all things? And I said, well, God did. Well, that's great. Specifically, which person? Uh, hmm. The Father. No, 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 no. Which person created? That's right, but, but specifically, he couldn't get Jesus out of me. Couldn't get Jesus out of me, and it's because I didn't know. I didn't know Colossians 1. I didn't know John 1. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that Jesus is the, is, 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 is the, is the agent of creation. I didn't recognize how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all worked together in that. I, I just believe that God the Father is the one who did it all, right? So we, 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 need, to, we need to make sure that, that, uh, that, that, that we're studying in such a way that, um, that, that when it's time for insights, our insights are helpful, are helpful. Number six, personal application. We've done the hard work of the historical background. We've personally paraphrased it. We've asked the questions. We've gotten them answered. We've, we've cross-referenced. We've gotten some insights. Now it's time for us to make an application so we don't wind up with Jeremiah 29, 11 on our bumper sticker. All right? Anytime I see Jeremiah 29, 11, I probably improperly, but I always do, make some assumptions about that person. So if, you got, if I go out in the parking lot right now, some of you guys are going to be ripping that bumper sticker off. Like, I hope he doesn't see this. And, and, and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, but the reality is, do we really consider the context, right? And so we, we're at a place where we can responsibly apply what we've learned after we've done the steps before this. We've done the background historically. We've paraphrased. We've done our Q&A. We've done our cross-references. We have some insights. It's time for a personal application. Now we can say, this is what it means for me, because we've done the hard work of recognizing what it means to the people whom it was written. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for me? Personal application. Personal application for me from these verses that we just read usually goes back to my personal paraphrase. I think you guys will find that as you use this study. Interestingly enough, the thing that God's speaking to you tends to be the thing that you wrote down. 
It doesn't always happen that way, but sometimes it is. So for me, it was don't make it all about you, you knucklehead. So I walk away from this passage going, well, if Christ is my Lord and Savior, and he's a servant, and he served me, then I'm called to serve like he did. And my problem is that I don't view myself as a servant, I view myself as a king. And until I put Jesus on his throne in my life, and me on my knees before him, serving him, worshiping him, then I'm in a bad place. It's not about me. I need to consider others. That's my takeaway. That's my takeaway. The last one is this, title and summary. I'm not always great about this last one. I I need to get better. There's a real benefit in being able to say, now here's the title of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and here's the summary, because that does a couple things for us. It's kind of like scripture memory. It's kind of like then translating it in your own verses. You're making it easier to remember, easier to recall. You're writing it down, and you're ready to go. And it's okay if your title doesn't match the title um, above the paragraph, because once again, that was not written in the, in the text. That was something that later Bible translators came along and added. So if your title misses the mark completely, then maybe you need to go back and look again. Maybe you missed it, but, but it doesn't have to match perfectly, okay? So it's really, really, really helpful. So for the sake of time today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and name those seven things again. I'm going to give you guys a couple of minutes for, for questions. Seven things. Historical background, number two, personal paraphrase, number three, Q&A, number four, cross-references, number five, insights, number six, personal application, number seven, title and summarize, and then my key thought of the day is don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. So in the next couple of minutes, do you guys have any, any questions for me? If not, you, you might have some for your table leaders. Any questions? Concerns? Man, that's a, that may be more than a minute. Let me share it really, really quickly, if I can. Graduated from seminary, was trying to lead my wife, uh, trying to lead my life, in the, my life and my wife <laughs> in the flesh. And so her spiritual time at home had to look like my spiritual time at home, which, by the way, guys, if you had not figured this out yet, that's a bad way to do it. Uh, her time with God isn't going to look like your time with God. Uh, there are some practices there that may be the same, reading the Bible, prayer, but it may take place at a different time, at a different table, in a different way than yours does, okay? Don't go home and give your wife the inductive Bible study method, and if she doesn't like it and has a better way, you get mad and tell her that she's uh, ignorant and, uh, and uh, doesn't love Jesus, right? So that was tended to be how I led to my shame. Uh, and so... Part of that was I just wasn't being transformed. So after seminary, I went off and took a job uh, as a college pastor at a, um, at a university in Colorado, Colorado State University. And through a, through a, a season, I, I got to a place where because, because Jesus was in my life, 
by the grace of God, I was being transformed slowly, but my time spent with him wasn't really transformative. And so I got to a place where God, had a, God brought me to a Nebuchadnezzar moment. And God brought me to a Nebuchadnezzar moment. I don't know if you remember Nebuchadnezzar, but he was so prideful that God made him go eat grass like an animal. So I ended up, because of my pridefulness and my lack of honor for the leadership that I was under, I ended up at 25 years old, uh, 26 years old, two years out of seminary, being in ministry, almost disqualifying myself because of my pride. To the point, remember all this is because when I read the Bible, it was about more Bible knowledge and not, not Jesus and being transformed. To the point where uh, both my boss and myself recognized that if I continued in that ministry any longer, I was going to hurt it significantly. So we separated, not amicably, because of my pridefulness. And I stayed in Fort Collins. Uh, I needed a job. Couldn't find a job. Blamed everybody. It was everybody else's fault, not my fault. The job I ended up getting is a part-time job at an apartment complex as a maintenance guy. And instead of praising God for the way that God provided for me, I was very angry. Most of my job, 80% of my job, was to walk around the grounds and pick up dog poo. That was 80% of my job. From the hours of 7.30 in the morning till 10.30 in the morning, I was to clean the place of dog poo, and there was a lot of it every day. In God's sovereignty, across the street was a massive evangelical free church, and every day as I made the rounds and turned the corner, the pridefulness of my heart, because it was untransformed by Jesus, although I was in Christ, I wasn't being transformed, because I wasn't committing to study that would be transformative. My thought was, if they only knew who was across the street, I didn't know who the pastor was. I didn't know if he could preach his way out of a paper bag, but I was confident that I was better than he was. And it didn't hit me for several months. God had, God had to get a hold of my attention. It didn't hit me for several months that this was God's gift to me. So I was running in the corner one day in March of 2012, and I looked down, and I'm angry because i got to pick up some more fresh dog poo. And I look at the church, and here comes the thoughts again, and God stops me in my tracks. And he says, Josh, I don't know why you're so prideful, why you think you're so prideful. Philippians 2 was definitely not understood and true of my life. You think you're something when you're not, and you're angry that I'm providing for your family. So two things, Josh. One, I'm providing for your family this way. Stop loathing it. Be thankful and praise me. And two, until you decide that I don't need you and that to be used with me is a blessing. Until you decide that, this is what your life looks like. This is it. I cannot use you until you humble yourself. And if you're not going to do it, I'll be glad to do it for you. And so in the grace of God and the mercy of God, because of the Spirit of Christ in me, it floored me. I did everything I could to repent. I went to the to the people, I confessed my sin as best I knew how at the time. And within six months, God gave me a new assignment at a church that took a chance on a guy who was still young and still prideful. And uh, God began to transform my life. 
because I began to approach the scripture in a different way. I woke up from that recognizing that all that study and all that seminary hadn't changed me. I knew a whole lot about God, but I didn't look any more like Jesus than the day I entered seminary and the day I entered that ministry. And so I said, if, I, if my aim is to know the Bible, I'm in trouble. But if my aim is to know Jesus, then, uh, then my life is going to be what God wants it to be. So that's a bit of my story. It's a bit of my story. Don't go untransformed. God's desire for us is that we would be transformed into the likeness of Christ. That's God's purpose in your life. And if you're committed to reading the Bible and doing ministry for any other reason, you're missing out on God's design for you. So let's pray together and then we will we'll lead out. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your scripture that teaches us about Jesus. May we approach your scripture uh, for the purpose of knowing you, knowing your son Jesus and being transformed into his image. May we use this inductive Bible study as a tool, not as law, but as a tool to help us be transformed into Christ's likeness. May this not become something that gives death to us, but instead brings life. May we not get caught up in the tool, but may we be caught up in Christ. And Lord, as we move forward, may we continue to be transformed, Lord, so that we don't have to walk around in the fields like Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to walk around being humbled by you, Lord. We praise you and thank you that you love us enough to humble us so that we can become more like Christ. And so, Lord, today, may we spend all of our time and all of our efforts uh, just gazing at Jesus and being transformed by Jesus. We thank you for your scriptures that allow us to do that. Go with us this week as you are in us to use us in the places we live, work, and play that we can become the disciples who make disciples. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.